Scripture lesson this morning, Exodus chapter 4, beginning at verse 18 and reading through the end of the chapter to verse 31. And Moses went and returned to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Let me go pray and return to my brethren who are in Egypt and see whether they are yet alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And Yahweh said to Moses and Midian, Go return into Egypt, for all the men are dead who sought your life. And Moses took his wife and his sons and set them upon a donkey, and he returned to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the rod of God in his hand. And Yahweh said to Moses, When you go back into Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the wonders that I have put in your hand. And I will embolden his heart, and he will not let the people go. And you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says Yahweh, Israel is my son, my firstborn. And I have said to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. And you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will slay your son, your firstborn. And it came to pass on the way at the lodging place that Yahweh met him and sought to kill him. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off the foreskin of her son and made it to touch his feet. And she said, Surely a bridegroom of blood you are to me. So he let him alone. And then she said, A bridegroom of blood by the circumcision. And Yahweh said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. And he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of Yahweh with which he had sent him and all the signs with which he had charged him. And Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the children of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words that Yahweh had spoken to Moses and did the signs before the eyes of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that Yahweh had visited the sons of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, then they bowed their heads and worshipped. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we again thank you for your holy word. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who directs us in the truth. And we pray now that you would give us wisdom, insight, and understanding, that we might understand this, your word, this day, that you would help us to see Christ clearly, and that we might uh, be so directed in the life of faith to which we're called that we might serve you all the more faithfully in the week to come. We ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Every so often we encounter a passage of Scripture that just makes us scratch our head and wonder, what's going on here? After Jacob's wrestling match at Peniel, wherein he suffered a hip wound and left that scene limping, as recorded in Genesis 32, the chapter concludes telling us, Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Why? Why are we even told this information? What does it mean? What bearing does it have for our faith? Well, there aren't any sure answers, at least not in my reading or from those I've consulted in the past. And so we walk away from a text like that, not really knowing what to make of it, chalking it up to the deep weird. Well, there's something of that in our text this morning, particularly in verses 24 to 26, and what takes place at the lodging place. And for as weird as these verses are, 
there seems to be enough context and evidence to help us to navigate them with some clarity to reach a reasonable understanding of them. But it's a strange text. And, well, it comes upon us rather suddenly in some respects. Nevertheless, this is God's Word to us, and it testifies of Christ, is useful for training us in righteousness. And so let's give ourselves to it with the expectation that the Holy Spirit will give us insight and understanding. We spent the last couple of weeks considering the commissioning of Moses and how Yahweh comes to him and provides both word and sign and the promise of success with the elders of Israel and of failure with Pharaoh. And we noted how the Lord seems to be willing to take his time with Moses and thoroughly explain things to him, showing himself to be much more patient with Moses, the reluctant servant, than we might be. Yahweh promises Aaron's assistance to him, that he will be with both of them, and is sure to instruct Moses to take the staff by which the signs will be performed with him. And so what do we read in verse 18? That Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law. Now, a quick reminder about geography. Midian was east of where Mount Horeb was likely located. So Moses travels east to return to Midian and then travels west toward Egypt when he sets off with his family. But where does he meet Aaron? At the mountain of God out at Mount Horeb. Moses requests permission of Jethro to return to Egypt to go back to his brothers to see whether they are still alive. Now, we might think that Moses is being disingenuous or not entirely honest with Jethro since he doesn't in any way divulge any information about his conversation with Yahweh. But it seems uh, fairly safe to conclude that it isn't Jethro's business at this point and he doesn't need to be in the know about the mission that Moses has received. However, Moses recognizes that he's under Jethro's authority and seeks his permission to return to Egypt. You know, he's been shepherding Jethro's flocks and so other arrangements will have to be made, etc. And all we have of Jethro's response is three words. Go in peace. But what does that constitute? Well, it's a blessing. Jethro, the priest, confers a benediction upon Moses. And so Moses is sent on his mission with blessing, even if Jethro isn't fully aware of what that mission entails. <coughs> and then no sooner do we read this word of Jethro's that we are uh, that we have a further word of encouragement to Moses from Yahweh in verse 19 and note that it comes to him in Midian the text is clear to say that Yahweh commands go return to Egypt for dead are all the men the ones seeking your life you know if Moses was wondering these 40 years later and still had hesitation uh, the Lord takes this reason out of the equation you know, basically, Moses is no longer a wanted man in Egypt. And it seems that this verse echoes forward, and we are right to consider the account that we read in Matthew chapter 2, after Joseph had taken Mary and Jesus to Egypt to escape the Pharaoh like Herod in the Israel become Egypt. The angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. See, Matthew chapter 2 is chock full of Exodus themes. And we do well to hear them and make the the connections with the experience of Moses, even as Jesus is the greater Moses. In verse 20, we read about Moses' obedience to Yahweh's command. And Moses took his wife and his sons and caused them to ride on the donkey. And he returned to the land of Egypt. 
And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. Now, a couple of things to note. We are told that Moses has sons, plural. We are told about Gershom. We were told about Gershom back in chapter 2 and verse 22. But have no way of knowing uh, the timeline of when he was born to Moses and Zipporah when they were in Midian. Later in chapter 18 and verse 14, we're told the name of the other son is Eliezer. But here they're simply listed as sons and that they, along with their mother, ride upon the donkey. Now, why do we need this detail? Why did the Holy Spirit include it? Well, we can make the case that it was a long way from Midian to Egypt. That's certainly true enough. And for Zipporah and her sons to walk all that way would have been difficult. There's only one donkey. And whether the three of them rode at the same time or they took turns riding the donkey and walking otherwise, we simply don't know. Again, and we don't, we don't know how old the sons are, which makes the next section that much more interesting. But what are donkeys in Scripture? Well, when we get to the book of Kings, for instance, they're what kings ride, particularly those of the house of David. So there could be some of that royal imagery being hinted at here. However, there's also a degree of humility that is associated with a donkey, even as it was the animal of choice upon which Jesus rode into Jerusalem. Even as Matthew records it as a fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So Moses, the deliverer, returned to Egypt humbly. And note that the text is specific to tell us at the end of verse 20, And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. This is the same staff from earlier in the chapter. Moses' shepherd's staff, the, the same one that Moses cast down and was turned into a serpent, and then which Moses took back into his hand, returning again into a staff. And also remember verse 17, where Yahweh says, And take in your hand this staff with which you will do the signs. Now, this staff is called the staff of God. Now, we shouldn't understand that there's some, like it's somehow magical, um, but rather that it's associated with the person of the Holy Spirit. It is the staff. Um, it's through that staff that the signs will be performed, even as Yahweh goes on to say to Moses in verse 21. And note the connection here in the language. When you go to return to Egypt, see all the wonders which I have set in your hand. Now, some of your English translations may read, have set in your power, but it's also the word for hand. And in biblical imagery, they're one and the same. The hand is equated with power. But then Yahweh uses the word wonders or miracles and not signs, as earlier in the chapter. Even though later we'll see these two words combined in, in chapter 7. But Moses is clearly told to do the wonders before the face of Pharaoh, but I will strengthen his heart and he will not send out the people. Now, the word just rendered strengthened is typically translated hardened, and that's fine, and the implication is essentially the same. But it's interesting to think about the nuance of the word. And again, Yahweh is clear to tell Moses that the first round of wonders won't be convincing to Pharaoh, that he'll be strengthened in his stubbornness, and he will not send out the people. And then in verses 22 to 23, Yahweh gives further instruction to Moses about what to say to Pharaoh, and it reveals some new information we haven't heard thus far. And you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says Yahweh, My son, my firstborn Israel. And I say to 
I say to you, send out my son and he will serve me. And if you refuse to send him, behold, I will slay your son, your firstborn. This is the first time that Israel is referred to as Yahweh's son and firstborn. And it establishes some important imagery connected to Israel, later fulfilled in Jesus. But here it applies to the people of Israel collectively. The, the, nas- uh, you know, the, the nation of Israel is considered to be Yahweh's firstborn. You might recall the multiple references to the sons of Israel in chapter 3. Now, all of the sons are collectively referred to as a son or the son. Now, there are a number of connections and themes that can be tied in here. Adam was a firstborn son, even as Luke's genealogy indicates. Cain was a firstborn, also Esau. And so the replacement of the firstborn with the secondborn is inevitable, even as Jesus is the secondborn to take Israel's place, even to take Adam's place, and so forth. And some of the foundation for that is here, but that's not the primary focus. Rather, we have set before us here, what we have set before us here are competing firstborns. So there's Yahweh's versus Pharaoh's. And the test mentioned back in chapter 3 and verse 18 is set forth again that Pharaoh let Israel go in order that they might serve Yahweh, that they might worship him. And the threat against Pharaoh is clear. Moses is going to make it plain what's at stake. How Pharaoh treats Yahweh's firstborn will determine how Yahweh will treat Pharaoh's firstborn. The firstborn held an important position in the ancient world. He was the center of the family's future, and to attack the firstborn was essentially to attack the family. And when we understand this emphasis upon the firstborn in these verses, then that helps us to better understand the the weirdness that we encounter in verses 24 to 26. See, the, the firstborn theme carries over. So let's, let's see if we can start to make some sense of it. First of all, as, um, as a hint to what's going on here, we need to understand that there's significant Passover imagery in these verses. Recall a point that we established a number of weeks ago in that Moses undergoes experiences before Israel, and that's no different here. You know, this is a Passover-like event that Moses and his family undergo before Israel does so, in chapter 12. Second, we have to pay close attention to the Hebrew text and be as true to it as we can if we're going to have a proper understanding of these verses. Uh, Every translation is an interpretation, and some of your margin notes, etc., can help here, but a literal reading of the text serves us well. Verse 24. And it was on the way at a lodging place, Yahweh met him and sought to kill him. And notice that him is not clearly identified. And if we were grading, you know, if we were grading this as a, as a paper, we'd be sure that the direct object was more clearly defined. But given the context, the best reading of the text is not to understand him as referring to Moses, but rather to Moses and Zipporah's first, Moses and Zipporah's firstborn son. Gershon. The mention of the possible death of a firstborn in verse 23 needs to inform our understanding of what we read in verse 24. And this reading is further supported in what we read then next in verse 25. And Zipporah took a flint and cut off the foreskin of her son and touched it to his feet and said, For a bridegroom of blood you are to me. 
So Zipporah performs the circumcision and she touches the blood to her son's, not Moses's, feet or legs. Now, what is that picture? Well, again, we have to look to other texts of Scripture where a display of blood takes place, which is what her actions symbolize. At the Passover, where is the blood spread? Well, on the doorposts and lintel. Doorposts are part of the foundation or the legs of the door, and so that may be part of the connection here. Also, in our study of the sacrifices in Sunday school, where does the blood get thrown or sprinkled from the sacrifices? Uh, well, on one of the places on the walls of the altar, which are also foundational. So that may be part of the underlying imagery here as well. And I'll be the first to admit that this sequence begs plenty of questions. First, why is Zipporah doing the circumcising and not Moses? Some contend it's because Moses is deathly ill and can't do it. And some translations make you think that Zipporah dramatically throws the foreskin at Moses' feet and screams at him that he's a bloody bridegroom. But that's not, that's not what's happening here. So why Zipporah? I don't have a great answer. Uh, and plenty of commentators readily declare that Moses' son should have already been circumcised in obedience with the Abrahamic covenant. And I can't say that they're wrong, except that Moses has been living in Midian and not in Egypt. And there's a similar sequence that we find in Joshua 5 when Israel prepares to take the promised land. What do they have to do first? Circumcise the sons of Israel. And what do they use? Flint knives. And if they have to, do, and, and they have to do this because those who were born in the wilderness hadn't been circumcised yet. Moses' son was kind of born in the wilderness. And Moses experiences first what Israel later experienced. So there may be something of this, something to this for our understanding here. Before Israel could go do battle with the Canaanites, they had to be circumcised. Before Moses could go do battle with Pharaoh in Egypt, his sons needed to be circumcised or something, something like that. Now, why Zipporah? Uh, again, we're not told. If I had a guess, it would tie into the prominent role women have played throughout Exodus thus far, putting her in good company with the Hebrew midwives and Moses' mother. But she readily interprets the situation and takes care of it, which means she had some knowledge of what needed to be done. Also, keep in mind that she was a shepherdess and had encountered plenty of blood in slaughtering sheep and other animals. And so we shouldn't think of her as necessarily being squeamish about the whole process. Another conundrum is that we don't know how old the son was. And the text is specific that it was one son that was circumcised, which makes us ask, well, what about the other? You know, this also leads some to think that Eliezer is the one circumcised here uh, because surely Moses would have circumcised Gershom but that assumes too much and doesn't match the firstborn imagery that I think we've already established. Also, we need to understand that in traveling to Egypt, Moses is headed back to Horeb, to the mountain of God, when this encounter takes place. So perhaps there's something to the fact that Moses can't continue with his mission until the blood has been shed, until it has been displayed, until a sacrifice has been made. As one theologian points out, circumcision was a form of sacrifice. But perhaps the elephant in the room, uh, the elephant in the room question that we need to seek to answer is, well, why is Yahweh seeking to kill this son in the first place? Well, it appears that we need to tie in the theology and imagery of the avenger of blood from Scripture. The foundation for this is set in Genesis 4, after Cain murders Abel. And the Lord tells Cain, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. 
Now, as we have established in weeks past, the bride is under attack by the serpent. The seed of the woman is being assaulted, even being killed by the seed of the serpent. That's been Israel's experience in Egypt, being afflicted. And the, what was happening against the sons and daughters of Israel. But we've also established that Israel was complicit to agree in not remaining faithful to God, but in worshiping idols. So they bear some of the responsibility. Their sin has to be dealt with. And looking forward, the Passover lamb will serve that purpose because that blood substitutes, it covers them so that the angel of death doesn't destroy them. Well, there's a similar progression here in that the blood shed and displays and displayed causes Yahweh to leave him alone. Again, some of this is hard to be sure about. doesn't answer every question we might have, might even raise others. But if we're willing to look at episodes and symbolism later in Scripture that are clearer, then it's possible that helps us to understand the sequence here. Verse 26, And he withdrew from him. Then she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. So if the, the son was visibly sick, about to die, uh, but then after the circumcision display of the blood, the Lord withdrew. But what does this phrase bridegroom of blood mean? Especially since it's used in back-to-back verses. One scholar contends that the translation should be rendered kinsmen by the blood of circumcision. And the argument is reasonably compelling. And that what is being portrayed here is that Zipporah is using ritual language and that through this act of circumcision, the son is being born into the community. And that interpretation uh, certainly seems to make the account simpler to understand to a degree, and that may be the way to take it. But if we keep the language of bridegroom of blood, then how could Zipporah refer to her own son in this way? Well, the best best answer I've found in that regard is to tie this in with what we read in Deuteronomy 22 regarding the virginity of a bride and the evidence of her virginity that could or could not be produced. To summarize and simplify, if the woman was found to play the harlot, she was put to death. If she had not, it's a display of blood that saves her. In his second letter to the Corinthians, Paul states, For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Now, what's part of the theology here? That Eve played the harlot with the serpent and committed spiritual adultery, so to speak. What's that mean? Well, she's under sentence of death. How can she be redeemed? Through the blood of a son. So we should probably understand that the, the, the seed of the woman uh, theology underlies what's going on here. And that Zipporah recognizes that she's saved through bloodshed because she says, a bridegroom of blood for me, which is a possible rendering of the language. So Eve is, Eve is guilty, but she becomes justified The bride is judicially forgiven, legally justified through the blood of the Son. God will pass by. Well, is Israel guilty of playing the harlot in Egypt? Yes, they are. What's required? Blood. And they'll be protected by the blood of the Passover lamb, as mentioned was made a moment ago. 
So what we have here in verses 24 to 26 is a what's called a proleptic event, which is a preliminary typological event. See, what firstborn in Egypt are going to be protected later? The Israelite firstborns. Who's going to die? The Egyptian firstborns. Why are the Israelites spared? Because of the blood. And then later, Israel acting the part of Yahweh's bride gets married to Yahweh at Sinai. See, that, that's where things are headed. But this bridal imagery seems to be underlying this text. And hopefully, uh, some of this imagery helps to make this weird text a little bit clearer. Again, there's more details we could pursue, but trust this will suffice for, the, for now. Well, this brings us to our final section this morning in verses 27 to 31, which is much more straightforward. In verse 27, we get a bit of Aaron's perspective that Yahweh told him to go in the wilderness to meet, uh, to meet Moses, and he does so. They meet on the mountain of God on Horb, and Aaron kisses him. He greets him, um, which is, was a greeting that makes a lot of sense for that time and after all the time they'd been apart. And then verse 28, Moses informs Aaron of all the words of Yahweh and all the signs he'd been commanded to do, summarizing Moses' encounter with Yahweh at the burning bush on Horeb. And then just like that, in verse 29, Moses and Aaron are in Egypt and have gathered together all the elders of the sons of Israel. And in verse 30, we read that Aaron was the spokesman, just as it had been arranged, and he spoke all the words which Yahweh had spoken to Moses and did the signs before the face of the people. So the words and signs, they go together. The word and sacrament go hand in hand, as we previously established. And what did the people do? How did they respond? They believed, they confirmed, they amend it. This is the same word used earlier in, same word used earlier in the chapter. And Yahweh's word to Moses that the elders, that the people would believe comes to pass. Still more, when they heard that Yahweh had visited the sons of Israel, same word used in 3.16, and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed down and worshipped. This, this ties together the themes that we encountered all the way back at the end of chapter 2. But essentially, this is Israel's turning back to Yahweh, their conversion, if we, if we can put it that way, though their newfound faith will be tested soon enough. And certainly this is encouraging to read. Yahweh the covenant keeper who thoroughly manifests himself to Moses, who patiently bore with his reluctant servant, is received by the sons of Israel through the people word and signs that Yahweh has given to them. Yahweh is to them a God who knows their circumstances and is acquainted with their grief. So what are some further points of consideration for us this morning as we, as we seek to appropriate this somewhat odd text? Well, in the first place, we must recognize that all of us, in some form or fashion, are under authority. You know, whether you're young or old, 18 or 80, somewhere in between, uh, you're a man, woman, boy, or girl who is under authority. It's inescapable in the world that God has made. It's part and parcel with the proper understanding and keeping of the fifth commandment. An extremely helpful exposition of what this entails can be found in the Westminster Larger Catechism, question and answers 123 to 133 particularly as it elaborates on what is mentioned in question 126, which asks, what is the general scope of the fifth commandment? Answer. The general scope of the fifth commandment is the performance of those duties which we mutually owe in our several relations as inferiors, superiors, or equals. 
See, see, all of us fall under those categories to varying degrees. And it's, inev- it's an inevitable implication of living in the covenantal world that God has made. We're tied together by covenants, so to speak, by the various relationships in which we must all live and function. You know, children, you're called to obey and honor your parents. Parents, you need to be sure not to be exasperating your children. And Paul talks about these things in Ephesians. And as children get older, especially in the teenage years, this dynamic gets trickier. And it takes wisdom to discern. But there's a certain degree of respect with which parents need to be sure to treat their children, especially the older ones. Conversely, children need to be sure to be giving proper respect to their parents, even if they think something is unfair. Because if you handle that well, if you handle that with a measure of maturity, your parents will likely recognize that and the Lord will bless it. You might disagree with the decision that's, that's made, but be sure to, re- to disagree respectfully. You know, do what you know the Lord requires you to do and trust Him with the results. And this is one of the key ways in which your faith is worked out and affords you opportunities to grow and mature. Again, here's Moses, 80 years of age, and showing deference to Jethro, his father-in-law, showing exemplary humility, which all of us do well to imitate. Then in the second place, let us recognize that Christ is is the fullness of the bridegroom of blood, that his circumcision, his crucifixion upon the cross, as Paul teaches us in Colossians 2, is the blood displayed for us. The the angel of death passes over. The Lord leaves us alone because of what His Son has done for us. What's more, we've been made alive together with Christ and it's through His work that we are justified, legally forgiven, and by which all the powers arrayed against us have been disarmed. And this is the reality that we celebrate each week here. In covenant renewal, here we bow down and worship our God and Lord who has seen our affliction who has visited us through the incarnation in order to deliver us from the bondage of sin and death, rescuing us from the clutches of Satan through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's made the way for us to be redeemed from our our idolatries and harlotries, that we might rightly pursue the mission that we've been given, to be faithful to the commission that we've received to rule and subdue the earth, to disciple the nations, to be obedient to all that Jesus has commanded. And so may we order our own lives in obedience to God's word, out of gratitude for what he has done, confident that he will bring his promises to pass, even as they are declared and demonstrated to us week after week through the word and the sacrament. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we again thank you for your word, for the marvelous way in which it is written. And we do pray that you would guide us and direct us in the faith that you have given to us, the faith that is a gift from you. And so may we give ourselves to the good works that you have for us, that we might be found faithful, that we might be found true to your word, indeed seeking first your kingdom and its righteousness. Grant us strength for obedience and grant us greater resolve to follow you all the more fully. We humbly ask, strengthened by your spirit, even as we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.